You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And we've already been building a strong foundation for why we believe the things that we do about so many of our beliefs. We said that Genesis is the origins for why we believe a lot of the things that we believe. And so we've already examined our understanding of marriage and why marriage is the way that it is. Um, But we're reminded again today that God has ordained it and God has defined it. But he's given the church the task to uphold it in a world that continues to distort it. What happened on Friday is nothing new in our culture, in our world. The world has been distorting marriage ever since sin entered into the world. And it's been distorting it in in multiple ways. Uh, Various ways the enemy has attacked the institution of marriage that God ordained there at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And so uh, nothing has changed in that realm for us. But I do believe that what happened on Friday is significant. It's significant for us moving forward, and I don't think we fully understand the significance at this time. But I think we'll see it in time to come, how significant this decision has been for our for our nation moving forward. And I want to give you some of those reasons today. But ultimately, today's purpose, again, is not to give you a sermon on marriage as though many of you don't understand a lot of these key components that are needed when we discuss this issue with others. Um, I'm coming from the vantage point of, of assuming that, that you've been with us through our Genesis time or have at least studies, studied God's word from the concept of Genesis and understand a lot of these key components. And so today's purpose, again, is to reorient ourselves onto the same page so that we are uh, together in unity, understanding the best and most effective ways to approach this issue moving forward. As way of introduction, there was uh, several several things that really stood out to me as, as I saw things on social media really begin to explode after the decision was made. Things that were heartbreaking for me, not from a lost world, but from a world professing to be Christian. Um, and I was I was in, I was specifically grieved over people's responses that I went to school with at Fayette Christian and, and the responses that they were having responses of either celebration towards the decision or inappropriate responses as far as kind of downplaying the decision and telling Christians to kind of back off their grieving of the decision. Um, and I don't know some of the things that you maybe saw, but some of the, the weak arguments that were being thrown around as to why Christians don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to understanding this issue. Um, a couple of things that really stood out to me were I saw several people responding that Christians have nothing to say about this issue because divorce is so rampant within the church that how can we speak to the sanctity of marriage and what God says about marriage if it's not being upheld within the church? Another uh, comment that I continued to see uh, from various people was that the, the church holds that this is a sin based on Old Testament teaching. And so if you're going to say that this relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is wrong, then you better not be eating bacon or shrimp while you're sitting at the computer talking about it. Um, And so they want to say, okay, we've got Old Testament laws that say a bunch of things that we don't hold to in the New Testament. Why should we still hold to this one? Why does the church think that this one carries over and the rest of them don't? And then then what you see from a lot of people is that we're called to love others, not to judge others. And so 
our response as Christians. We really have no response to this if it's from a negative standpoint, except for celebration, because we're called to love other people. We're going to see some of the fallacies in those arguments and their presentation uh, later on. Uh, But I wanted to kind of share with you what really grieved me that really led me to saying, okay, we'll put the Abrahamic covenant on hold for one more week and let's talk about this because if you're seeing these things, or if I'm seeing these things, I'm assuming you're seeing some of these things and potentially wondering what is the right response to what happened on Friday. Um, So a couple of things of way of introduction. First, while the ruling by the Supreme Court was tragic, the real tragedy lies with professing Christians and churches that will celebrate this decision. That's the real tragedy for me. It's not that this decision was made by the Supreme Court. This is an expected decision in a nation that is lost. With people that are lost making the decisions, we should expect that these type of decisions would be made. What's a tragedy is when you see so-called pastors. Now, we would maybe argue that's not, that's not really part of the universal church. That church is strayed from the gospel But under the label of church, under the label of pastor, which a lost person probably doesn't know how to distinguish between the two, true church and false church, all they see is church and pastor, to have these type of figures standing up and saying, this is good, this is progress, this is uh, needed change for our nation, that's the tragedy. To see people on Facebook that, that I was friends with or went to school with, to see them celebrate this decision while also professing to be a Christian, is a tragedy to me because it further distorts the gospel. It further distorts the gospel picture that we're trying to portray to others, which means our efforts now, our efforts as a true church to see people saved, it becomes harder because the gospel is distorted because this is a picture that we're supposed to be able to point people to. Right? Paul says that marriage was given as a picture of Christ in the church. And the more that picture becomes distorted, the harder it is for us to use it as a teaching tool for the gospel. Now, in no way am I saying that the gospel is losing its effectiveness or losing its power. I'm just saying that the darkness has become darker, which means the light now has to shine brighter. It's harder. It's harder because of this decision, because the gospel becomes distorted when one of its primary pictures is being tampered with. While the ruling does not directly affect a lot of us, right? I don't know of anybody in this church that was anxious for this decision because it now allows them to carry through on a decision that they've been wanting to make, right? Nobody in here is running down to the courtroom after this decision to get married. Now, you may have family members or friends that have been anticipating this, but, but for a lot of us, this has no direct effect on us right now. But indirectly, we will see great effects from this decision, I believe. You know, a decision that was made prior to me being born was the decision uh, revol- revolving around abortion, the Roe versus Wade decision. Abortion is something that I've grown up just assuming it's always been this way, right? Like you can tell me this decision was made in the 70s. I wasn't around in the 70s. So all I've known is a culture where abortion was becoming more and more prominent. I don't remember life before abortion being an option for women. Our children, for a lot of us with young children, they will never remember a society or life without homosexual marriage. 
This will be our Roe versus Wade for those of us that weren't around for Roe versus Wade. This will be a paramount decision that we will see the decisions down the road. We'll see the effects of this decision down the road. Right? I think the people that were, were there for Roe versus Wade are far more grieved today about abortion than a lot of us are that were born after the fact. Because they can remember what it was like before. They can see the effects of that decision now. And they can be far more grieved about it versus those of us that say, I hate it. I'm grieved over it. But this is all I've ever known. This is what a lot of our children will grow up to to understand and experience. They can be grieved over it. But for us, it'll be a different type of grieving because we will remember what life was like before this decision was made. So while it doesn't directly affect us right now, the indirect, ref- uh, the indirect effects are certainly coming for us and for our children. And then lastly here, while the ruling will further harden people in their sin, it will also clarify the difference between the ch- true church and the world. There's some positives and negatives to this decision. The negative is that this will further harden people in their sin. You look to Romans 1, you see the pattern of God giving people over to their desires. They continue to become harder and harder in their sin, which makes it harder and harder for them to be rescued from their sin. But thankfully, the gospel is, is that, has that type of power. The positive aspect is that lines are being drawn in a way where the true church and the false church can be further separated because of this issue. That the church and the world will become further separated as long as the church continues to cling to the gospel and hold true to what the gospel and God's word teaches. So there are some positive effects that can come from this, while there are many negative effects I think that we'll see. But as we rejoice over the positive effects, we will see that there are lines that are drawn and that the, that the church will become more and more separated from the world, I believe, because of this decision. Let's look at a couple of angles that I want to show you about this response uh, or about the Supreme Court's decision and our response to it. It's more than just a marriage issue. It's more than just who can marry who. It starts with us looking at it being a gospel issue. The marital picture of Christ and the church is now further distorted because of this decision. Now, again, the gospel doesn't lose its effectiveness. The gospel isn't less powerful today because of this decision. It's just more distorted from a human standpoint because that marital picture that God created marriage for, created marriage to show us Christ and the church in that relationship, it's more distorted now than it ever has been. It's a gospel issue. How one defines marriage is based on where one believes marriage originated. Questions about why do we marry and what does it mean have been asked recently because of this decision. Now, for us, we answer these questions differently than a lost person. A lot of the response that I've seen in the news media is that marriage is a institution that man created, that society created. And so, therefore, if man created it, man can further clarify and define it moving forward. We obviously believe that God created marriage, that God ordained marriage, and God defines marriage and has made no alterations to that. I have a hard time believing man in his selfishness and sin would have really ever come up with the concept of marriage on his own without a supernatural being saying this is how it needs to be. For me, I see human beings being selfish. Why would we ever enter into a relationship like this 
if it wasn't a picture of what life was supposed to be like before sin. If this stuff flows after sin, the concept of marriage coming after sin, why would any man or woman that's born into sinful flesh confine themselves to this? I believe that lost people follow into marriage because God ordained it and, it, and it's, kind of, it's kind of in them that this is how it should be. And so we're going to follow through culturally because it's this way. But we believe that it originated prior to sin, prior to selfishness, and that God has made no alterations to his creation of marriage. God defined marriage in the beginning when he instituted the relationship. In Genesis 2, if you're there, look at verse 24, a passage that we taught on extensively when we were working through chapter 2. But therefore, a man shall, cle- shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This passage carries over into Paul's understanding in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul relates the marriage relationship to the gospel. Marriage is meant to be a picture of a greater reality. It's meant to show us something bigger than just a man and a woman coming together. When we go to Christian marriages, hopefully the pastor that is officiating that marriage points the entire audience to that fact. That we celebrate this man and woman coming together today, but ultimately it reminds us, it helps us to long for the day when we as Christ's bride is reunited with our groom. That it's a picture of a greater reality. But there's some criticism that comes when we talk about this gospel issue and understanding marriage this way. The criticism is that people will say there are a lot of homosexual couples that are better partners and better parents than Christian couples I have met. This is an argument that a lot of people want to throw out there, that you're telling me that this shouldn't happen because God created it the best way possible, and the best way possible is for a man and a woman to be together, and it allows for them to be the best parents possible and the best husband and wife possible. But people want to argue and say, I've, met the, I, I've experienced the exact opposite. I've experienced man and woman together, and it's an awful thing. And I know couples that are better at being partners and better at being parents than Christian couples that I've met. This is a criticism that I've seen flowing on social media. How do we respond to this type of criticism? How many of you have heard this type of criticism before maybe, okay? Potentially a valid criticism. Potentially this is true. Potentially their exposure to Christian couples and how the marriage relationship is played out has been far less ideal than what they've experienced from uh, the other type of relationship, the homosexual type relationship. So how do we respond to this type of criticism? A couple of different ways, and you don't have to take the time to write all these because these are a little bit longer. If you want to try to summarize uh, as best you can, I wouldn't try to write these down word for word. Think through the fact that laws exist to preserve and enhance the public good. Okay, that, That's what laws are for. When, when man makes laws, the intent behind the law is to develop something that enhances the good of everyone. A lot of times we're not free to choose what's good for us, right? We're not, we're not 
given the option anymore to decide whether we should or should not wear a seatbelt. Right? Like it's mandated. It's part of the law. If we get caught without a seatbelt, if I get caught not protecting my life, then I can be fined for it. The the law says that for the public good, you should have to wear a seatbelt, even if you're ignorant to think that you shouldn't wear a seatbelt. That's what the law says to us, that we don't think you're smart enough to put on a seatbelt, so we're going to make you pay every time we we find you without a seatbelt. Okay? The, The motive there is that we make laws that are for the good of the public. Now, I know that when Lauren and I are disciplining AJ or asking AJ to do things, a lot of times he asks, why? Why do I have to do this? Why can't I do this? Why do I have to do this? Now, the easy answer is to say, because I told you to. And sometimes that's the most appropriate response. But Lauren and I intentionally try to explain to AJ a lot of times the reasoning behind why we're asking him to do do certain things and why we're asking him not to do certain things. If he can understand the reasoning why, it illuminates him to the good as to why we're putting restrictions on him or we're asking him to do more than what he maybe naturally would want to do. So I think it's helpful for us to think through what makes God's ban on this activity good. Did he just arbitrarily say, this is how it's going to be, and it can't be any other way. Why? Because that's what I want it to be. Or is there good built into his ban on this activity? Is there good built into God saying marriage is between a man and a woman and a man and a woman only? I believe that there are good things that God has interjected into this ban. When we or or when society pursues uh, this type of marriage, it's a rejection of God's plan for gender. You'll remember when we worked through Genesis, we talked extensively about how God created man and then created woman and that he was very clear in the order that he created both. That there was reasoning behind why he created both in the order that he did. Remember we said that God created man alone with the intent of creating a longing and a desire for someone like him. And so God even meticulously brings the animals before Adam to show him that there's nothing here like you. Nothing here like you. Nothing here that can be a partner for you. Creates that longing inside of him creates a, an understanding that, that the provision comes from God and not from an animal kingdom, God creates woman and, and blesses him with that helpmate Scripture talks about. Because he creates man, gives him the mandate to oversee creation, but then brings woman alongside and says, you can't do this by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. God says, I've created man with a certain capacity to do certain things in a certain way, And it's better enhanced when the woman comes alongside and fulfills her role of following his leadership, responding to his leadership. Remember, we talked about that a woman needs biblical manhood in her life so that she can respond to it. Even as a single woman, she responds to biblical leadership within the church. She follows that biblical leadership and helps and complements with her gifts and abilities that she uniquely has. Not, not a subunit of man, not inferior to man, a perfect complement to man. And when we reject that relationship, when we say, okay, two heads can work together, 
and, and be a marriage marriage component. Two helpers can work together and be a marriage component. What we're talking about is a rejection of gender roles. Somebody in that relationship, man and man, woman and woman, somebody has to act like the other gender to make that relationship work. It's a rejection of gender roles, which means somebody in that relationship is having to forfeit what they are to be something that they're not which means they can't fully experience what God has created them to be, the joy of biblical manhood and womanhood, because it's being forfeited and attempts are being made to supplement that by being something that they were not created to be. God says, I've created you uniquely different. And if you try to go against that, it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to because you're different. You're created to be different. And by coming together, it's a perfect union of what's needed to reflect my glory and my image properly. It's a rejection of God's plan for reproduction, right? This is part of what marriage is for. It's for reproduction. Now, we can be argued that, that uh, homosexual couples can adopt, right? And so they can reproduce themselves in ways that many Christian couples do that, that are unable to have children. They, they, they bring in someone that doesn't have a family, doesn't have parents, and they're able to raise them. The problem is if you carry that out all the way and everybody were to embrace that type of mentality, humankind would die off. At some point, there would be no more kids to adopt because there would be no more production of children. Marriage was, was instituted so that mankind, so that life would continue. It's a rejection of God's plan for reproduction. Ultimately, it's an expression that God's ways are not best. That God's ways are not best. I think it's also important for us to recognize and realize that the church has claimed that traditional marriage is God's good design, but we have left our culture unconvinced. And that falls back on us. It falls back on us. We say, we communicate, we preach that marriage, traditional marriage between a man and a woman is God's good design, that it's the best avenue, that it produces the best parents, it produces the most long-lasting love, and we've left our culture unconvinced. Now, I know every circumstance has its own situation, and there's all kinds of reasons that lead to the, the breaking apart of marriages. We have people in here that, that have been redeemed from, from those type of, of things that have happened in their life. Scars that are being healed. So in no way am I saying that, that there, are, there are some that have caused this problem more than others and, and that they should be held accountable. All I'm saying is, is that we have done a poor job a lot of times of portraying what we say we believe. And it's something that we need to own up to and we need to be held accountable for. And it's something that we need to be challenged to change moving forward as well. We must embrace a renewed commitment to model strong biblical marriages with strong convictions about divorce and remarriage. Scripture teaches a lot of stuff about this. And it's our responsibility as a church. If we're going to be faithful to the word of God, even when it's hard, we have to be committed to biblical marriages that model what we say. So, so I would hope that every single person in here that's married this morning, regardless of what's happened in the past, that moving forward, 
moving forward, the aim and the goal of our marriages would be to model strong biblical marriages. Because our culture is desperately going to need to see that. So, so our immediate response, while at times it feels like, what can I do when a Supreme Court decision comes down like this? One of the best things that you can do is to go home and love your wife like Christ loved the church. To submit to your husband the way that the church is called to submit to Christ. To model to your friends who will be affected more by your marriage potentially than any Supreme Court ruling. To model to your friends and contacts what a godly, biblical man and woman marriage looks like. To model that for them in a culture that continues to distort marriage. It's important that we make sure our marriage doesn't detract from the gospel. We must also accept that those with glaring mistakes don't possess as clear of a voice sometimes. There's at times when we are making decisions that that hinders us from really having a voice about this. You know, I, I was I was grieved to learn that a pastor that I that I held in high regard had to resign from his church last week in Florida because he was uh, caught in adultery. This is the type of stuff we're talking about. A man who is, has proclaimed and, and called people to biblical marriage, has proclaimed and denounced homosexual marriage. His voice is now hindered. A man who had a public platform to speak on this, his voice is now withdrawn because of decisions that he's made. And it's a reminder to us, those that may be tinkering and tampering with poor decisions in our own life, to run and flee as far away as we can to prevent our voice from falling into the background as well. Strong biblical marriages, that's the best response that we can have in our church right now, is to invest in our marriages. It's a gospel issue. It's also a gender issue. We've already started to touch on this. The roles of man and woman are now further blurred jesus created sexuality and therefore has the right to determine guidelines for its use the union between man and woman is where this type of relationship finds its god-appointed meaning in mark chapter 10 verse 6 But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. These are the words of Jesus. The God-appointed meaning of marriage, it's a logical union. When we consider the, the biological makeup of a man and woman, it's the logical union for this type of relationship. It's the best way for gender expression to happen. We've already touched on this, that, that God's created male and female. He puts them in a relationship where their differences are meant to thrive, not to be overwhelmed by the same gender in that relationship, not to have to, to pull back on what I'm supposed to be because someone else is already fulfilling that role in this relationship. I'm meant to be in a relationship where my gender difference can thrive can flourish can respond to my partner's gender differences 
The gender roles of man and woman within the marriage are not interchangeable. We're to picture a bigger reality and model the interaction of that reality. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Here, Paul's talking about the fact that the man and woman are not to have interchangeable roles. It's not that, okay, if, if the man's not going to do it, then the woman will do it. It's not to be viewed as interchangeable because it's a picture of Christ in the church. One leads and one follows. That's the bigger reality of what marriage is supposed to picture. And so it's not interchangeable roles where, okay, I'll do the leading for today since I'm also gifted in that way. You submit, and then tomorrow we can, we can interchange out that, and you can be the leader and I'll be the follower. That's not what God intended. He intended for the gender roles to flourish in these relationships. Now, the criticism that comes from this is why should we dictate who can and cannot marry? People should be allowed to love whomever they want. That's a common criticism towards this perspective. Okay, it's man and woman that should come together. Man and woman only that should come together. Well, the worldly criticism is what gives you the right to say that? Why should you dictate what, who I can love and who I can't love? How do we respond to that criticism? First, we must see that each person, we must see each person that struggles with this sin as an individual who was created in the image of God and deserves treatment as such, but is unsure how to live out that image properly. We must see each individual that's, that's in this type of situation, in this type of response. We should see it as an individual who obviously doesn't understand the origins of gender and doesn't understand what it means to live out that gender difference. So we don't respond in, in harsh treatment. We don't respond in anger and argument to these type of criticisms. We identify the criticism and we identify the root problem behind the criticism. Okay, what, what's really going on here when someone says, why should you dictate who can and can't marry, who I can love and who I can't love? What we have here is a failure to understand gender differences. And that's a whole separate topic of what's going on in our culture right now with gender differences being traded out. People saying, well, I, I want to trade what I am for something that I think that I am. That's a whole different issue. What it's at the root of this, this criticism is a person who's struggling to understand that they're created in the image of God and they don't understand how to live out that image properly. But, and we'll come back to this, every single person, every single person that walks this earth deserves to be treated as an individual created in the image of God. Now, we talked about this in ethnicity differences, how we are called to love and to treat others regardless of skin color based on the fact that they are created in the image of God. This, too, would apply to anyone who is expressing a different sexual orientation. They deserve to be treated in the image of God because they are created in the image of God. We must model strong biblical roles within our church as an expression of what God intends manhood and womanhood to be. This is another immediate response for our church. 
Not only do you need to go home and love your wife and love your husband the way that, that the scriptures call you to, this expands to all peoples in our church, whether you're married or not married. You need to model what biblical manhood and biblical womanhood looks like to our culture, to those around you, because that too is becoming further distorted what it means to be a man in our culture, what it means to be a woman in our culture. And that will further be distorted as we move forward with this decision. It's a gender issue. Not just a marriage issue, it's a gender issue. And this has all types of issues moving forward for our nation when we can't keep those two separated. And then lastly, it's a cultural issue. It's a cultural issue. The seriousness of sin is now further suppressed and it will continue to be further suppressed in the minds of people in our nation. The seriousness of sin is being suppressed. See, one of the major criticisms that I saw yesterday by people that support this decision is why would a heterosexual married man be concerned about this? This is not a law that now mandates that I can't be what I am. All it is is a law that frees up others to be what they think they are. Why, why would a heterosexual married man or a heterosexual married woman be all that concerned about this decision? Does it affect them? And the, the implied response that you're supposed to have is, well, no, it doesn't affect me, I guess. And the absolute response is that it, yes, affects me and it affects my children. And here's why this is an issue, and here's why I think it's relevant for us to talk about this today. Not because I believe anybody needs further foundation about this so much, but we need to understand why this is important for us and why this does affect us. First of all, this sin now becomes easier in our nation. This sin will become easier and easier every day that we move forward from Friday. It's more tolerated, it's more accepted. Most of us can remember when this was not tolerated and not accepted on television. When it was really taboo to have a homosexual character in a TV show or a movie. Now it's almost as though if it's not there, why isn't it? Like it's almost a necessity. You got to have this, you got to have this, you got to have this, and you got to have that component. It's more tolerated now than even when I was growing up. And it will continue to be more tolerated moving forward. Because it's easier. It's easier. Our laws, our laws helped restrain this sin. There were people that their flesh longed for it. Their flesh desired it. But because it was contrary to our law, it kept, it kept some of this at bay. Kept some of it restrained. And now that that restraint has been removed... This sin becomes easier. It's more accepted. It's more tolerated. It's more, uh, it's more accepted within our society, which means more people will now be apt to pursue it, which means we've got to contend even harder for our children moving forward. And don't think that this is something that comes up later in life. In my time in youth ministry, both at a church and within a school, I've counseled kids as young as middle school and younger that are struggling with this issue. They're being exposed to it. They're questioning it. Whatever ways that, 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 that leads to, however they've been exposed to it, they've been exposed to it, and they're, they're, they're sitting with me talking about it and wanting to know, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do? Our kids are going to have to be contended for by us. 
teaching them a biblical foundation and understanding of what this means because it's easier now. He'll be more accepted. Your kids will see more homosexual couples moving forward. They just will because it's easier now. It's more accepted. It's more okay. And so our kids will be exposed to it more and more moving forward. This sin has moved beyond toleration to celebration. This is something that John Piper commented on several times in in his articles. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are who uh, are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, calling evil good and good evil. Romans chapter one. Verse twenty four. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Skip down to verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, that's that's what's startling. And this is what John Piper mentioned in his article. What's startling about this sin is that it's being celebrated by people that aren't even engaging in it. It's, it's a point of celebration for people that are not prone to this, that aren't even interested in this changing their life at all. They celebrate this decision. They approve of what innately they know to be wrong. They approve of it. They celebrate it. He made the point that most sins are still viewed in a negative light, even though they're tolerated. Right? We, we tolerate things in our society that are wrong. We tolerate greed and adultery. We, we, we tolerate pride. Those things are rampant in our community. The difference is that we don't typically celebrate them. When you have a guy running for office, these are the type of things that will remove him very quickly from being a candidate. You find out that he's got uh, money laundering or some type of money scam in his past. He's a, he's a thief. He's out. You find out that he's got some skeleton in his closet involving another woman than his wife. He's out. Nobody wants him as the leader that hinders his chances of being a strong candidate. These are sins that are rampant on TV, rampantly tolerated in our culture. But when it comes down to it for an individual, it's not celebrated. Nobody's beating down the Supreme Court steps saying, hey, can we legalize uh, being a thief? Nobody, nobody's doing that, right? Nobody's saying make this legal. This is the one sin where we are doing that. And that's what makes it a little bit different and makes it all the more tragic when we look at it. The rescue from this sin becomes all the more difficult. This also needs to be considered by us. The rescue from this sin becomes all the more difficult. The pattern there in Romans 1 is that they continue to delve further and further into their sin. And I was having a conversation with, with someone in our church and uh, the comment was made, is this, is this better than the alternative of two people just living together. Because we would say an unsafe person, an unsafe person, it would be more God-honoring for them to be married than to just be living together. 
So is this a step in a better direction that, okay, these two are at least married now. And I would argue that it's far worse than the other. It's far worse because two unsaved people come together in marriage. One of them gets saved. What does scripture say? They stay together. They stay together as long as they can, as long as the unsaved person will tolerate the saved person. Why? In hopes that the unsaved person will be saved. I don't think there's any of us that could counsel someone who is saved out of this relationship that we're talking about now that we would say, you need to stay in that relationship. See, what's been mandated now on Friday is being acceptable moving forward when these marriages happen and by God's grace, people will be saved from them. Divorce will be absolutely necessary for them to proceed in holiness moving forward. And that's tragic. That's tragic because now divorce will be absolutely necessary. Whereas previously, a woman or man could be encouraged to stay, stay in that unbelieving marriage as long as the other one will tolerate you in hopes that they come to Christ as well. It's a far worse situation than if they were just living together. I think it's also concerning that these arguments used And one of the chief justices even mentioned this, and I forget his name, but he said that what's concerning is that moving forward, the arguments that were made to to legalize and to justify this relationship could ultimately be applied to all kinds of relationships. That we're only a, a few steps away from polygamy being legalized because the same arguments could be applied to that relationship. And then we could get into all kinds of heinous relationships as well that could be argued should be allowed should be allowed for the same arguments for why this relationship should be allowed. It opens up a, a, a Pandora's box of what is possible within our nation moving forward. But the criticism here, and I'm sorry, this is small. So you don't want to write this down word for word. The criticism is we should not worry about the sins of others. We should not be judgmental. We should tend to our own sins and remember that God is love. After all, Homosexuals haven't chosen this lifestyle because who would choose to live a life where they are constantly belittled and mistreated? This is a strong point of criticism that comes towards Christians. They want to say this lifestyle is wrong. Are you perfect? Who are you to come tell someone else that they're sinful when we could probably label all kinds of sins in your life? You know, I saw repeatedly people joking that were celebrating this. Yeah, who am I to say that this is wrong? I'm a glutton. I eat all the time and have no restraint. Or I've been divorced three or four times. I've had I've, I've cheated on my wife. Who can I? Who am I to say that someone else is wrong? This is a strong point of criticism to that comes from the lost world to the Christian world that says, "Worry about your own sins, not about the sins of others." Who are you to judge? God is love. After all, these people didn't choose to do this. This is who they are. This is who they were created to be. How do we respond to this criticism? I think it's important that we remember there are two types of people that we're contending with here, those that are non-believers and those that claim to be believers. And how we respond to both are totally different. Totally different. Um, one conversation I was having yesterday with, with a, a lady that went to my school, she's much older than me, so we don't have like a friendship, but... She kept over and over and over just emphasizing on Facebook uh, that we have no business being in each other's business about what's going on in our lives in regards to sin. 
So I sent her a message. I said, what about all the passages of scripture that tell me that I'm supposed to be concerned about the sins of my brothers and sisters? I can't I can't fulfill the New Testament as a believer if I say, ah, you know what? That's your problem. That's your sin. I'm just going to keep quiet over here. It's none of my business. And that's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that we're supposed to be absolutely involved in the lives of others. Two different people, and I think it's important to, to identify who we're talking to. Someone who holds to some authority of Scripture that we can at least appeal to, or is it someone who has no biblical worldview because the responses are going to be totally different? Um, it's important, too, to remember the distinction must be made between orientation and act. While many of us are born with certain orientations, lust, pride, it doesn't give us a license to act. So we're not, we're not permitted to then boast. We're not permitted to then just take whatever we want because we were born lustful, right? So it's important to differentiate between orientation and acting out that orientation, acting out those feelings that we say we are born with. It's important to distinguish between those two. Scripture always calls us not to act on our sinful tendencies. doesn't condemn the sinful tendencies as something that we can help. We're born with a sin nature that God has to fix. We're always called not to act out those tendencies that we have. I think it's important, too, and I think people need to understand whether they are already part of Christianity or claiming to be a part of Christianity, or if they are outside of Christianity, that Christianity is very open about who we may and may not sleep with. So for someone to say, what gives you the right to say what can and can't happen The response is the Bible makes that distinction all the time. A couple of important examples uh, I think that we could draw on. Jesus and the woman at the well, John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus is having the conversation with the Samaritan woman, which was shocking enough for her that he was even talking to her. Jesus says, um, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman goes on to go back home and tell everybody, Jesus told me everything that I've done. Like she identifies that what Jesus is talking about with her is that what she's done is not okay. And she's been looking for satisfaction in a relationship that she's never going to find. But Jesus makes a clear distinction here about what she's done and what's not okay. Uh, Another great example uh, is John the Baptist and Herod in Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist is called like the greatest man that ever lived, right? Like, I mean, he's, 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 he's viewed that way in scripture. Matthew chapter 14, verse one, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. 
Like Christianity defines who we're allowed to be with and who we're not allowed to be with. John the Baptist steps up and says, you took your brother's wife. That's not okay. Scripture doesn't say, oh, John the Baptist should just stay out of this guy's business. Like that's none of his business. Let him do what he wants to do. No, this is, this is affirmed as the right response, that it's not okay. Paul addresses the church in 1 Corinthians 5 and says, you've got some serious immorality happening in your church, that you need to remove that person from your body of fellowship, that it's not okay. So I think it's important for anyone, if the conversation is, is focusing on Christianity, that this has been a pattern all through Scripture, what is and what isn't okay when it comes to this type of relationship. One of the most loving things we can do is to stay involved in the lives and sin of others, especially when they are blinded to its presence and future consequence. Hebrews chapter 3, a couple of these passages that, that we would say, hey, I can't fulfill the New Testament if I keep to my own business. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Author of Hebrews says, Adam, you need people in your life that are constantly telling you, stay with your wife, stay with your wife, stay with your wife. Don't deviate from that relationship. Why? Because sin is very real, and my tendency to grow hard to it is very real as well. I need people exhorting me daily so that I don't become blind to my own sin. Um, Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2. If you see someone in sin, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That we should go after people that are falling away in sin. Why? Why should we care if someone's making sinful choices? It's none of our business. Well, if we don't love them, then yeah, it is really none of our business. But Romans chapter 1, verse 27, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. See, Scripture teaches there's consequences to sin. So if I don't care about somebody, if I don't love somebody, then who do I care? I don't care if they, they make a choice and it leads down to a, a certain type of consequence. See, our, our, our culture wants us to believe that involving ourselves in someone else's business is hatred and bigotry toward their behavior. That love wins and that love should be something that reigns. But what scripture communicates is that love warns. Love says, I love you enough that obviously you're not aware that this path leads down to destruction. And I want to rescue you from this path. I want to warn you that continued involvement in this will lead to your destruction. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let's don't downplay what that is. The wrath of God is coming upon all kinds of sin. And for us to truly love somebody, it means us warning them that God's wrath is coming. So don't be deceived into thinking that a response to this is hatred or bigotry if we, if we go against it. We're all about love. And we're all about warning people with our love. That if they continue to make sinful choices and decisions, it will lead to their destruction. 
Um, one other thing that I don't have up on here. While our sin deserves equal punishment in God's eyes as believers, our sins have been forgiven through repentance and faith. Our disordered desires have been swallowed up with desires for greater things, replacing that old mindset. And then continued participation in any sin should remove all confidence concerning one's future treatment by God. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. So that the criticism is, is that we should worry about our own sins and not the sins of others. And there's, there's truth to that. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Like This is true, and, and too oftentimes this is the only message that comes from the church, that God's wrath comes on these type of people. And what fails to get communicated from the church is verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. See, all of us were in a sinful condition, just like these that were grieved over that are celebrating what happened Friday. We were in that place. We fell into one of these categories of these sins that were listed that would keep us out of the kingdom of heaven for eternity. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So here's where the criticism doesn't hold up. Don't criticize me about sins in my past and tell me that I have no voice right now for what is a sin in your present. See, I've been sanctified and cleansed and forgiven for my sins in the past. Now, if I'm living in adultery currently, then I really have zero voice to talk to you about this relationship. I do need to go home and, and clean up the log in my eye before I try to deal with the speck in yours. But the implication there when Jesus talks about that is not, okay, just go home and always tend to your business. The communication is get your house in order so that you then really can be useful to those around you. And so that's where we've got to recognize the criticism and then say, hey, you're right. You're right. I did have a broken marriage in the past. And you know what? By God's grace, I have been cleansed and forgiven and restored from that. And that's what I desire for you. See, what you're referencing is something in my past. What I'm talking about is something in your present that needs to be dealt with. You too can be washed and cleansed and sanctified just as I was. We must embrace a renewed desire to kill all sin in our life as the toleration of any sin is inexcusable. So we've seen three immediate responses this morning. One, go home and love your wife and love your husband. Go home and be a godly man and a godly woman, whether you're married or not married. Go home today and kill sin in your life so that you can have an effective voice and help others out of their own sin. Don't let your life, don't let your marriage detract from the gospel. Don't give someone else a way to criticize what you're saying based on choices that you're making. Make sure those things are in the past and not in the present. All right, as we close, not that we haven't already talked about application. Um, application for us, and that top part's from last week, so ignore that. Um, Pray and grieve. Some things that, that can be an immediate response for us. Pray and grieve for sinners and lawmakers. We need to be in prayer 
for those that make the laws of our nation. We need to grieve over the sins of those around us. It's an appropriate response. Psalm chapter 119. Verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. It's an appropriate response for us to grieve over what took place on Friday. But it's also necessary for us to be respectful in how we talk about God's authorities. Let's not forget what Romans 13 teaches, what 1 Timothy 2 teaches, that we're called to pray for our leaders. We're called to be subjected to our leaders. They they come from God. I think it's important to remember, too, that what took place Friday is that these things can happen, not that they must happen. They can happen. The door has been opened that this can happen. The response from the church is, let's make sure that it doesn't happen. Let's work with the gospel. Let's allow the gospel to change people's hearts and desires and minds so that even though this is permitted, it's not something that comes to fruition. We can battle this because it's a can thing versus a must thing. Engage and develop relationships with homosexuals we encounter. This is important. This is important because when you read Romans 1 and you read about the tragedy of mankind giving up glory for the, for the creator, exchanging it for the creature, and then you see mankind fall deeper and deeper into sin, and then there's approval of sin there at the end of Romans chapter 1, the answer to that demise is found at the beginning of the chapter in 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The only way people that are that are engrossed in this sin get saved is if people like us go to them, establish relationships with them and share the gospel with them, showing them a life that has been changed by the gospel. See, th- this is very applicable to what we talked about from ethnicity. Remember we talked about us being more of a culturally diverse church. We need to expand the, uh, the people that we interact with, if that's ever going to happen. I would love, I would love for our church to be filled with people that are saved from this sin. But you know what? That doesn't happen if we don't encounter them and develop relationships with them and share the gospel with them. And that's not to say we can't have somebody that walks in and says, hey, I've decided to come a part of your church. I got saved from this. But filling our church up with people that way is probably not likely unless we get real intentional, because I would venture to say all of us are exposed to people of this lifestyle that are making this choice, whether it's family members, whether it's friends, co-workers, all of us probably know somebody, somebody that's, that's, that's making a choice into this sin that is on a path of destruction that needs to be saved, as Romans 1 says, through the power of the gospel, engage and develop relationships with those that we encounter. But I would caution you to be careful here because many people alter their views on whether this is right or wrong, whether this is a sin or isn't a sin because of relationships they develop with people. They get to know these people and they find out these these people are people, right? We don't have to be scared of these people. We don't have to be fearful of these people. These are people created in the image of God. And regardless of this sin, a lot of times they're good people like a lot of us are, right? We got a lot of prideful arrogant 
lustful, sinful people in here that I love to spend time with. Right? Like I love to have dinner with you despite all of your sinful flaws. And so you find that when you start interacting with people like this, that, hey, they're sinful people just like me. And you know what? They can be fun to hang out with and they can be good friends. And then you get sympathetic to it and say, maybe this is okay. I read an article recently of a, of a pastor who had been against this, who's now come out and said, you know what? I'm okay with it. These are good people. You could hang out with the best Mormon ever, and it doesn't make their religion right. You can hang out with the best homosexual person ever, and it doesn't make their lifestyle choice any more right in God's eyes than what it did before you met them. That's important to remember. This is a caution that as we interact and engage and try to develop relationships, that we're cautious in that we don't lose sight of what God's word says. Communicate and model biblical marriage in a culture that needs it to see it more than ever. We've talked about that pretty extensively today. Um, all right, and then the last three here, and we're done. Affirm and respect all people as created in God's image who need Christ. Affirm and respect all people as created in God's image who need Christ. We want to be a church that still has something to say when this lifestyle fails to satisfy people. John Piper says we tell them that, that it's wrong and that we love them. That's a picture of both extremes. There's the people that say that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And there's others that say, I love you, I love you, I love you, it's okay. And he calls us to balance where it's wrong, but we still love you. We still have a heart for you. We still want to see you saved. It says a church that is given up on the truth. Of, there are two sorts of churches that will, that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution refugees. A church that is given up on the truth of Scripture, including on marriage and sexuality, and has nothing to say to a fallen world, and a church that screams with outrage at those who disagree will have nothing to say to those who are looking for a new birth. Number five, preach and uphold God's word to those who disagree with us in a loving way. Second Timothy four reminds us that we're to preach the word in season and out of season, that we're to always be prepared. Just preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We need to cultivate an environment where healthy discussion can exist with disagreement. We need to be willing to listen to others to understand what the root issues are. We need to not be silent, but we need to not be a jerk as well in trying to engage people with this. Nobody wants to listen to a jerk, but people need to listen. People need to hear truth flowing from our churches. They just need to hear it in the right way. Then lastly, rejoice in hope in a sovereign God and a secure end. As Russell Moore shared with us in the video this morning, Jesus is still alive. Hell does not prevail against the church. And we're reminded in Revelation that the last wedding ceremony does have a bride and a groom. The church has always thrived in environments where it needed to shine brightest. Think about all the letters in the New Testament and all the authors that have to write to Christians that are living in a sexually distorted environment. And the church is growing and thriving and they're adding to their numbers regularly. So this in no way renders the gospel ineffective. If anything, it empowers the gospel potentially. Because as I said, lines are drawn. True church and false church is shown. 
And the gospel can really create change because there's such a distinction between those that it hasn't changed. So we can be encouraged. We can rejoice and hope in this secure end. I hope that something that we've shared today can can be taken by you and, and incorporated into your response to people. A lot of us are going to go to work tomorrow. And a lot of us are going to have this be the topic of conversation that everybody wants to chat about. And you're going to see really bad Christian responses potentially that you need to help correct and fix and redirect. You're also going to see really bad lost responses that also need to be corrected and redirected. But they happen differently based on which type of person we're talking about. But I think this is so important for us to talk about today. Like I said, we could easily have talked about the Abrahamic covenant in in Genesis 12. We'll get there next week. But I felt like it was important for us to start thinking along the same lines because most of us will have these conversations tomorrow in some form or fashion. Either at work, we'll either see it on the computer and have opportunity to interact. Let's make sure that we don't detract from the gospel. Let's make sure that we adorn the gospel with our responses. Let's pray together. Father, we want to praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. We're thankful that in a time like this, we don't have to wonder what the right answers are, um, that you've revealed uh, what you desire for man to be, for woman to be, what they're to be together. God, I pray that in the midst of criticism, um, that we would not grow silent, that we would not withdraw fearful that we'll say the wrong thing, fearful that these criticisms are are valid and that we have no response. God, instead, I pray that we'd be very sensitive to the criticisms that we hear, that we would acknowledge our own shortcomings. God, I pray that we would be godly men and godly women that marry together and produce godly marriages that adorn the gospel. Father, I pray for immediate application in our church that our our marriages would be strengthened, even this afternoon, that husbands would love, that wives would love. God, I pray that uh, our singles that are a part of our church would be the godly men and the godly women that they're called to be, realizing that for many, they are preparing for marriage. And so, God, I pray that through those godly men and women that you are growing and developing in our church, that you would produce godly marriages that can be a light in our community. God, I pray that we would leave here today intentional about killing sin in our life. Because, Father, we don't have a right. We don't have a right to go and try to tell someone else how to fight their sin if we're not faithfully fighting ours. God, help us to tend to our business and to fight sin faithfully. And not stay out of each other's business. God, I pray that we would do it so that we can be in each other's business in a faithful, loving way. So that we can exhort each other. So that we don't become deceived and hardened to sin. God, we do pray for those that are influential in our nation right now that are able to make laws. That you would lead and guide them. God, I pray for the response of churches specifically to this decision that the gospel would be upheld and that we would continue to lovingly warn those in our communities 
not just about this sin, but about all sin, that God's wrath is coming upon them. So, Father, I pray that we would be a blessing to others this week as we have opportunities to talk and discuss and to interact, that we would be faithful to call people to the gospel, that we would be faithful descendants of Abraham, that we strive to be a blessing to others, that they can enjoy Christ forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.